At this time, our children are dismissed to Sunday school. And if you'd stand with me for the reading of the word. Today's text comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is the word of the Lord. Please bow with me for prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for making us one new body, and we ask that you would just be with Kyle as he speaks. Speak through Kyle and just give us the peace that speaks of in this passage that we know from, from knowing Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, you can all be seated. Thank you all for being here this morning. If any of you are astute and listen well, uh, the text that we're in today is the same one as last week. How many people noticed that? Nobody? I knew it. Oh, yeah, you liars. <laughs> it's so good to be here with you all this morning on the Lord's Day to worship our God um, and to um, give praise to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, I just wanted to let you all know, um, what, if you're curious what that chunk of poster board is in the back, for those of you who were there yesterday, at the uh, missions conference. My wife is holding it so you can see her right there. Um, that's basically, we were at a missions conference yesterday in Mana, um, for Mana Ministry, and they um, let us know there were a bunch of different needs, um, and they had this thing on the wall where they had different items that you could help purchase, and that is basically a chunk of a generator that we were, as a church, able to help purchase. Um, it was about $9,000 for the whole thing, and uh, we contributed $3,000 for it so they could have electricity. So um, that was just a really great honor, a, a blessing for us to be able to, to help them and to contribute towards their efforts. You know that they, um, Mana Ministries in India, and oftentimes when, uh, they don't have power like we have here in the United States. So a lot of their power is focused on very like rich centers of the city. They get the power all the time. The rest of the city gets it sometimes. So it makes it difficult for them to do work and respond to emails and create things and all the different things that you know we take for granted with our power. So that's going to enable them to just always have power. So praise God for that. Um, and thank you for your generosity and your giving. Um, every week when you give in our offering, we put aside 10% um, for um, compassion or missions um, types of things. So that's where that money comes from. And just over the past year, we've been able to save a lot of money from your giving. So thank you so much for your generosity. And um, it's, it's a blessing that, you know, we're, we're still kind of a small church. It's you know, a very intimate group. Um, but we're still able to do some pretty awesome things um, because, of, because of your generosity. So thank you. Um, I, as a church, we just wanted to thank you for that. Uh, and also, um, I know this has been maybe a little bit, um, this is kind of last-minute announcement about as far as the baptism for Craig. Um, there were just some, obviously it's winter, and we don't have a baptismal. <laughs> so we've been, we've been scrambling, trying to figure out, how to baptize Craig. 
Um, so we're gonna do it, uh, like Morgan said, I know it's last minute, but I'm just gonna encourage you, if you can, please try to go, because a baptism is a way that um, our church can celebrate um, with, a, with a person who's making that decision. Um, you know, so just try to be there if you can, and we're just gonna celebrate with Craig. It's gonna be a lot of fun. It's not gonna be very long. It's probably just gonna be an hour or two. Um, not the baptism ceremony. Morgan also does um, a Bible study at Dave Schwinnard's house. His address, by the way, if, uh, if you want to go, you got a pen right now, just write it down. It's 2675 North Main Street in Fall River. Okay, so we're going to dunk Craig in a very cold pool. <laughs> well, and in January, we're going to have to figure out where to, uh, if someone needs to be baptized, where to do it. But, um, but yeah, so praise God for that. Try to be there if you can, 2675 North Main Street. If you're familiar with Fall River at all, his house is right near that seventh, seventh, what is it? Seventh Day Adventist Church. Um, it's right, right, like in the back. So you see the church is on the left, and his back, his house is like to the right of the church in the back. So that's where he is. I hope that you can all join us. But yeah, let's join me in prayer once again. God, we thank you so much for um, the body of Christ. God, we thank you, Lord, that your body, of, that the body is gathered today, this morning. We thank you for Christ community church for leading us in worship and blessing us. Uh, God, we could have just sang for an hour. <laughs> that would have been enough. Um, we thank you, Lord, for how they've ministered to us this morning. I pray that your word would be spoken clearly and powerfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we learned a little bit about the church and what the church is, that church is not just a place to go, but it's a people who have been reconciled to God and therefore reconciled to each other. So church isn't a building, it's a people, a people reconciled to God and each other. Now, um, today is a national Back to Church Sunday um, day. It's a national day designated to call people back to the Church of Christ, and if they've stopped going, uh, or if they've never gone, to maybe start going. And this is one of those days that we just kind of celebrate and participate in. And we're just thankful that many of you have invited um, um, friends and family uh, to be here this morning. So I just want to express a little bit of concern about the whole title Back to Church or We're Going to Church Today. How many people have ever said that? Let's go back to church. It's been a long time. I haven't, you know, we, we haven't gone in a very long time. So let's go back to church. Or those of you who go every week, you probably, hey, let's go to church today. Right? I want to just express a little bit of my concern about the way we talk about church. Uh, for many of us, I think that when we say um, we're going to church, we're thinking of a place, we're thinking of a building. We do this to sort of respect God and our faith in God. And maybe for others that has little to do with God, maybe just like that we serve muffins. Or that there are people, right? There are people here and you can be friendly with them and those are all very nice things. It's a place to socialize. But I want to talk today what, what the church really is and who Christians really are. And I want you to consider that, if you sh that, that maybe you shouldn't go to church, but you should be the church. You say, all right, we don't have to go to church. You just said it. We, maybe we should change our language, let me say, about not going to church, but being the church. If we simply go to church, church is just a destination. It's just a thing that we do on Sunday morning. But if we are the church then it's something that we do every day. It's who we are. It's our identity. It's how we relate to each other and to Jesus Christ. So let's, let's be accurate and let's say this. We are going to the public gathering of the church on Sunday. That's what we've done today. But 
we are the church every day. Right? Isn't that more accurate? The Bible says for us to gather on Sunday morning, that's what we do. That's why we do this, and that's why we're all here this morning. But we are going to the public gathering of the church. So we're the church every single day, wherever we find ourselves. We are the church of Jesus Christ. Now here's a definition of a Christian and of the church. A Christian, and therefore a Christian church, is a group of people reconciled to each other because they've been reconciled to God through Christ. Okay? A Christian church is a group of people reconciled to each other because they have been reconciled to God through Christ. And today I want to unpack this meaning, this great meaning of reconciliation. That's our theme this morning. One poet, you might remember these words, wrote, How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach when feeling out of sight for the ends of being an ideal grace. I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need by sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with the passion put to use in my old griefs, in my childhood's faith. I love thee with a love I seemed to lose with my lost saints. I love thee with the breath, smiles, tears of all my life. And if God choose, I shall but love thee better after death. And we all said, oh, <laughs> beautiful, iconic, classic, romantic words. Who knows who wrote it? Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Actually, um, born in Massachusetts, I think. What some don't know about her is that as a child, um, she was in an accident and it caused her to live a, a life of semi-invalidism um, before she married Robert Browning in 1846. There's more to her story, though. In her youth, Elizabeth had been watched over by a tyrannical um, and abusive dad and mom. And when she and Robert decided to marry, their wedding was held in secret because of her father's disapproval. And after the wedding, the Brownings sailed for Italy, where they lived for the rest of their lives. But even though her parents had disowned her, it's said that she never gave up on that relationship, that she wrote them letters almost weekly, and not once did they reply. She did this for years. After 10 years, now listen to this, after 10 years, she receives a large box in the mail. And inside, she found every single letter that she had ever written to her parents unopened, returned to her. Tragic. Today, those letters are among the most beautiful and classic literature, in, in English literature. Had her parents only read maybe a few of them, would it be that Elizabeth's relationship with her parents might have been reconciled, restored. Now most of us, I think, throughout our lives, if you're old enough, <laughs> um, have endured the pain of a broken relationship with a friend, a parent, a sibling, spouse, son or daughter. We've, we've gone through these times in our lives and sometimes we find that there's a mutual hate. You know, two people that once loved each other, now they both hate each other's guts for whatever the reason. 
Other times, it's not mutual. There's one person who desperately loves the other, and for some reason or another, the relationship has broken and the other person has become hostile. And it's in these hard and sad times in our lives, um, wouldn't we love to open a letter from that person that we thought was so angry at us and hated us, but instead we found, how do I love thee? Oh, how happy would we be? We'd have so much joy of the freedom and forgiveness that we find in reconciliation with people who have been estranged in our lives. I, th I think we know, just deep down in our guts, even if you're not a Christian, that these divides, just on a very basic human level, shouldn't happen. So you're here, not a Christian, you don't believe in Jesus. Don't you know that that's true? Don't you know that something is broken, that something happened that shouldn't happen? We just instinctually have it in us that love and wholeness is the way it should be. That people shouldn't cheat on each other, people shouldn't lie to each other, people, people shouldn't abuse and manipulate each other. And, and might I suggest that the pain that we feel when a relationship is broken, can I suggest to you that that pain is there as an indication of God's love for you? Let me explain what I mean. The broken relationship that matters most is our broken relationship with God himself. So in other words, the reason we feel pain in our broken relationships with each other is God helping us see a bigger relationship, a more important relationship, an ultimate relationship that is broken, that needs repair, that should not be broken. Our relationship with God himself, the creator of all things. Now in our text we see three basic themes. The human problem, the divine pursuit, and the received outcome. The human problem, the divine pursuit, and the received outcome. So let's just unpack this and look at these one, of a t one at a time. The human problem is separation. Let's read in our text. Remember, in verse 12, that you were at that time separated from Christ, from God alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now this says a lot, and this actually gets a little bit deep theologically, but I want to keep it simple this morning and just basically say this. Our scripture, in essence, is telling us that the basic human problem, our dilemma, is a separation from a holy God. We have been separated Scripture tells us, first of all, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the basic gospel that we're about to go through. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. And earlier in Ephesians 2, if you kind of just look back a little bit in verse 1, we learn that all people are dead in their trespasses and sins. Now let me just kind of say that another way. We are dead in our relationship to God himself, the person that we were created to have intimate relationship with. Okay? Sin has caused this. Now in our, con in our text, we have some very vivid imagery of the word death in other words. Death is described as a separation from God, an alienation from God, making us strangers with God. That we have no hope and we are without him. That is the brokenness. You see, if we ever become broken with anybody else, it's because we're broken with him first. The reason we can't have whole happy relationships with each other 
is because we do not have a whole happy relationship with our Creator. Another passage of Scripture says this, For while, and this is in um, Romans chapter 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now that's, that's got a lot of good news in it, but don't miss the bad news. It's bleak. Enemies, the Bible says. Without Christ, enemies separated from God himself. It adds to Ephesians that we are weak, that we are sinners, and that we are God's enemies because of sin. Now I know that we're just, some of us are just squirming in our seats a little bit because maybe you're not Christian, maybe you're thinking to yourself, you know, my modern mind just can't accept this. You know, this is regressive, it's outdated, it's, a, it's oppressive. We're, we're just too smart scientifically to believe words like sin and God and separation and all this. Maybe the Bible's got some nice things to say about certain morals and way to live, ways to live your life. But I think for many, when we talk about these subjects, it's just one of the reasons why I think it's hard to believe Christianity. No, no, no if that's you, <laughs> this morning, I wrestle with these things too. I was raised in the same country under the same philosophies and worldviews and all the different things that make me kind of wrestle and struggle with some of the concepts of Scripture. Can I just add to you, though, that it's quite possible that in, in all of time, in all of the different cultures and nations, that we might not be right as America about everything. <laughs> right? Maybe the things that we're so passionate about us, we have learned from our culture, and it might be wrong. Right? Now, you could say the same thing about Christians. Christians might be wrong, too. But we need to, we need to ask honest questions. We need to think through these things and not just immediately dismiss one thing or the other without really examining it. The nagging displeasure, I think, is God's gift to us. I can't escape this idea. As much as I struggle with the worldview of Christianity versus postmodernism at times, as much I can't, I, I can't help but, but, but meditate on these things and, and think about these things. I can't escape the idea no one has to convince me that something deep within me is separated from something else. We all just know it. We all know that we have been separated, that something is wrong, there is a gap, there is a hole, there is something missing in our lives. And we, all of life, all people try to fill that. They try to figure it out with love, sex, or relationships, or jobs, or power. We all try to find it, and to no avail, do we ever find it? All people for all time have sensed this need, by the way. It's not just us. It's not just an American curse. This need to be connected to something and never really finding that something. Friend, might I suggest that that nagging displeasure in you is God's gift to you. It's meant to point you to him. He's what's missing. He's the creator. He is what you are estranged from. The reason you can't find pleasure in anything else is because everything else is not him. He's the only him. 
You are separated from him, friend. The defunct relationship is not ultimately with a spouse or a parent. It's with the God of all creation. It's God himself that is the defunct relationship. Now, I know, again, we don't like this word sin today. We trip over it. I want you to consider sin in this context, though. Sin, you say, oh, sin is just like, if there is a God and there is such a thing as sin, I don't really like God because God's just kind of arbitrarily making up rules about fun things that I can't do now. Right? Like, sometimes that's how we feel. Like, what's God, God doing in heaven? Just kind of making it up and saying, don't do this because it's fun and I really just want to make you miserable. <laughs> right? Is that what sin is? Now we, so, so that's kind of how like, we understand the problem of sin. Don't do fun things. But consider it like this. Sin is a refusal to believe that God is most beautiful and most radiant and the most, most um, magnificent presence that we need in our lives. It's the refusal to admit that we need him over everything else. When we reject that, we turn to everything else and our lives become sin. They are a, uh, it is a pursuit to be joined with anything but God himself. A refusal to admit that he is beautiful and perfect, that he created you and that he loves you and wants your fullness. He wants you to have purpose and love, but you turn to everything, but to, um, everything else um, in life, in all of creation, but God himself. R Paul says it like this in Romans. They worshiped and served the creature over the creator. What's it saying there? You're looking for your fullness, your joy, your completion, your reason for meeting, your purpose for your life in the creature, over the creator, in people, in relationships, in status. How's that working for you? It doesn't. You know it. And might I suggest that it doesn't work because the Bible is true. That God's word is true. That there is a God. That he created you and he loves you. And the moment you just believe and say yes, you'll find your life. You'll find it. In me is life, Jesus said, and life abundant. Now, if that doesn't straighten out, I think the common misnomer that sin is just God arbitrarily making up rules to make our lives miserable, consider this. Sin is what's been crushing you and robbing you of the full life that you want. Isn't it ironic? Because the things that Christians call sin, oftentimes when you're not a Christian, you turn to those things to be full, to get your life happy and whole. <clears throat> sin is more than an assault against God. A lot of times in Christian churches, that's a lot of what you hear. God is holy and you're sinning against him. Stop it. That's true. I don't want to say that that's not true. Sin is more than that, though. Sin is, is an, a personal assault against yourself. It's an assault against you. Because if you're created in the image of God, all sin is is you being not like God. And if you try to not be like who you are, it's going to hurt you. It's going to wreck you. If there's a God and he made you, all sin is are those things which go up against who you are. Remember, you ever see that movie Hook? Um, and it's with Robin Williams and the old lady. I forget her name. What's her name? In the movie, not a real name in real life. Wendy. It's Wendy. She says, Peter, don't you know who you are? Because, see, he's forgotten that he's Peter Pan. And she says, don't you know who you are? And I think, like, that's, that's us. We've forgotten who we are. We're not just flesh and bones. 
created, you know, not, not like uncreated accidentally that just kind of happened from some smudge a billion years ago. That there is a loving God who made you, made you for relationship with him, that your wholeness and your happiness and your fullness of joy is found in your embracing the God who made you and loved you. So doesn't this just kind of make sense? If, if there is a God and he made you, all sin is just those things that go up against who you are and who God is. So, so these words, it just makes sense of the plight of man. It shows us that the simple truth that because of sin we're separated from God, strangers and aliens, and therefore alienated from each other. You know, like it or not, scripture makes sense of life. It describes life how it is. That's, to me, evidence that the Bible is true. If God created us, let me add this. If God created us to be joined with him, in all other people, that was God's intention for us to have unity and friendship and love with all of creation and him. If we have scorned God and resisted God and rejected him, wouldn't it mean that we would start doing that to each other? Don't you see now that the source of your broken relationships in life is not your stubborn mom and it's not what happened, it's sin. It's a broken relationship with God himself. And only found, finding reconciliation with God will lead to reconciliation with people who you love. So our plight is separation from God. Let's look at the next. The divine pursuit, the sacrifice. The divine pursuit is sacrifice. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. You who were once strangers, estranged, aliens, have been reconciled to God because of what Jesus Christ did for you in your place. In Christ Jesus, we who were far off, separated from God himself, have been brought near and by his blood. Not by your blood. Isn't that great news? That the reconciliation that you need between yourself and God requires not one ounce of your own blood to be spilled but Jesus Christ's blood itself. It's a re the blood of Jesus Christ here is a reference to the death and resurrection that he died on the cross 2,000 years ago. Consider again, back to our text in Romans, verse 8, Romans chapter 5. But God shows his love for us by giving us a big bouquet of flowers. No, that's what we do. We show when we love someone. No, God shows his love for us that while we were sinners... Christ died for us. Now this is an ultimate sacrifice, but isn't it true in human relationships that oftentimes we express love to each other by sacrifice? When we give something up for another person is often and only the indication that someone actually loves us. If someone is, let me just put it like this. If, this is the negative way to look at it. If some, someone is completely unwilling to sacrifice anything for you, they don't love you. <laughs> That's important to know. They don't love you. If they're, if they're unwilling to sacrifice, now that's hard. And sometimes we think someone loves us and then we start realizing, oh, they don't. They don't actually. You know, as young, I think as, as a younger man, I confused what love was and I thought people loved me that didn't actually. And then that, kind of the light turned on and it was heartbreaking. It was terrible. But it was also helpful and liberating at the same time to know what to look for in the future. To, to know what real love is. Love is sacrifice. He shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Isn't that incredible? While we were still sinners, Christ died. Let me continue reading, and I got an illustration for this. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God. So who, in Christ's death and resurrection, is he showing love to? Enemies. People who hate him. You know, we're really good at showing love, sacrificing for people that earn it, that give us something. And this is again illustrated very simply in Young Puppy Love, right? I'm willing to spend a lot of money on shoes or flowers or dates or romance, all these, it comes in the, the sacrifice comes in the form of I don't have any more money in my bank account, right? <laughs> Who am I giving it to, though? Someone who I think is the tops. Someone who's nice to me. Right? That's a little Greg Brady, right? Um, she's the tops. Um, someone who's nice to me. Someone who's beautiful. Someone, in other words, someone who is not my enemy. We're very good at loving people and giving ourselves up for people and sacrificing for people when we think we can get something out of it. That we do get something out of it. But isn't this interesting? The great irony of God himself, the great love that he shows us is that the, the greatest sacrifice ever displayed was not to some bombshell. It was to wretches, filthy wretches that deserve nothing but his judgment and punishment. People who have scorned him and hated him, he still decided to show his unfailing love through the death of Jesus Christ. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were enemies and yet reconciled to God by the death of his son. Wow! You don't think of yourself like that. I never, I'm not God's enemy. I don't hate God. Yeah, but in scripture, if you worship another God, it's the same thing as, as making God your enemy. If, you, if, if there's another thing that you worship, you don't, you've rejected him. God's nice, I don't hate him, that's kind of how we think. But the reality is, we are God's enemies because we rely on other gods for our own completeness and fullness. So here though, in this great drama, the great story, the drama of redemption, is that we sit as enemies of God, yet he loves us and sends his son Jesus Christ to reconcile us through his death. Much more now, that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We'll get to that in a moment. It is true, if it's true that, that we try, excuse me, it is true that if we try to bridge the separation that I described before, if we, in other words, if we had to spill our own blood, that we'd fail. We don't have enough blood in our bodies. The cost is too high. If it was our blood we, that would need to be spilled, it would be entirely inadequate to reconcile the relationship. So if God said, hey, straighten up, reconcile yourself to me, we'd never be able to do it. This is why we have this image in Ephesians that says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself, because it's impossible to do of yourself. So, how do you reconcile a relationship with God? Not by tying the shoelaces or coming to church or stop smoking or chewing, right? Right? Again, Greg Brady, right? Who chews anymore? I don't know who does that. But, but, who, but, but if it's entirely up to us, then hope is lost. 
We can't pay the, the, debt, the, the debt, the penalty. And here's the difference between real Christianity and all other re religions. You want to know the difference between Christianity and Buddhism, Christianity and Shintoism, Christianity and Hinduism? Here's the difference. Christianity is news. Religion is advice. Christianity is news. Religion is advice. Religion says do this or do that and you'll have a good bad life or a bad life. That's advice, right? R Christianity says that something has happened for you magnificent and marvelous in the past done for you. That's news. And the news is simply this. You were God's enemy separated from God because of sin and Jesus Christ loved you and rescued you and res reconciled you through his death and resurrection. And the only, the Bible says that the only prescription for us to receive this reconciliation is to simply believe that he is Lord and Savior. Except, yes, I am separated. My sin is a problem. And Jesus saved me. That's it. That's it. Religion says do, Christianity says done. The divine pursuit is God's pursuit of us to reconcile us to himself from our separated plight. And let's look at the third great theme in this text, the received outcome, reconciliation. So we have the separation, we have the sacrifice, and we have reconciliation. Ephesians chapter 2 again, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. He has broken down <clears throat> in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man. God wants you back. He loves you, and he wants you back. Our sins separated him, ourselves from him. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the way in which God gets us back. Would you believe that this morning? Responding in faith to the news that Christ has died in your place, a death you deserves, deserved, means that you right now, according to our text, if you believe in faith, have been brought near to God. You're no longer far off. You're brought near. The Bible says you're a new man, reconciled with your creator. We who were formerly separated as God's enemies are now friends. Happy day. Happy day. You know, you can walk away and not believe this this morning. And you will feel a nagging sense for the rest of your life that you are not reconciled to something. And until you finally believe, will you feel that relieved? It could be right now, or it could be 15 years from now, after a long and hard road of figuring out that the Lord Jesus Christ is what you need to be reconciled to your maker with. Romans 5, again it says, Therefore, we have been justified. Now these are these heavy church words, right? We have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved 
by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now justified, I just said that's kind of a church-heavy word. It's a TV show, I think, too. To be justified in Scripture is a legal term. It's a judicial term. It means that all of the righteous demands and just demands that are the, the result of our sin have been satisfied at the death of Jesus Christ. So let me just put it simply. If you owe a million dollars and you go to court and someone sues you and they're right and you owe them a million bucks, the only way to satisfy that debt is to not pay them a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. It's only by paying them a million dollars. So the, the righteous satisfaction only will happen when that debt is paid. Scripture says that the wrath of God, the anger of God toward our sin is fully satisfied with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is such glorious news because that tells myself and it should tell you that there is not an ounce more of blood, another work that we have to do, but it's all been fully paid by God himself. And that, the, that the moment you believe, you are perfectly and finally reconciled with God in heaven. Amen? The moment you put faith in Jesus Christ, it is settled, it is paid, and you are free. All of life afterwards, the, all of the Christian, why, so why do you do what you do, Kyle? What, because I love Jesus now. Why wouldn't I? Do <laughs> you realize what we're talking about? My biggest, he's my, the greatest lover of my life, and he's rescued me. I mean, don't you love people that give you stuff? <laughs> Isn't that just kind of natural? Well, he gave me forgiveness. He rescued my wretched life. All of now, it's said in Titus, we study this, it's, it, we adorn the grace of God with our good works. We don't earn the grace of the, the salvation, the reconciliation of God through our good works. We adorn it. Amen? <clears throat> when you believe in Jesus Christ, you are reconciled to God. He was once your enemy, now he's your friend. Amen. Now, I'm going to close. <clears throat> and um, someone made a joke yesterday about when preachers say in closing that they don't really mean it. I, I mean it. So, I'm almost done. Deep within the heart of us, as people, even if you don't believe any of this, um, is the gospel. You have, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ this morning, you have the gospel in your heart. You live, probably live your life by the gospel. Let me explain to you what I mean. And, and by the way, that was put there as God's gift to you to show you that when you, heard, when you hear the gospel, that the gospel is true. So let me explain to you what I mean by the gospel's in your heart. When a, relation, when a relationship is broken and strange, you know it, it's wrong. It shouldn't be happening. You also know that the only way for it to be healed is someone's got to forgive. Someone's got to sacrifice. Someone's got to take it on the chin and say, it's, I forgive you. Because sometimes that's the only thing that you can do to have the whole, the relationship whole again. We know it. Without our forgiveness, even if someone pays us back, if we don't forgive them, the relationship's broken still, right? We have to forgive them. And it, and it requires a sacrifice on our part to let it pass by. The gospel's in your heart, friend. You know it. Broken relationships require forgiveness and healing that require grace and sacrifice. 
If our relationships are ever going to be whole, we have to be able to give forgiveness even though people don't deserve it. And we all know that. It's in us. The goal is to be joined again. It's in our hearts. Even all of us who might, all the all people who might reject the gospel. And shouldn't that point to you, the, the, the truth of the gospel? That the problem in your life is a separation from God. The only way for that, that, that gap to be bridged is if a God forgives us through Christ. It's right there. It's on the table. Does the gospel not show us this? Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were friends who had become political enemies. I'm sure many of you have at least have some knowledge of Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. They were our founding fathers of the United States. But they were, they were friends, and then they became like bitter enemies. That, you know, because they won the war against England, and now it's time for people to you know, run for po political power and different things. And that started happening in, in their later years. And they started becoming enemies. They started, and that's, that's odd to us, right? Because we, I thought politicians loved each other. Um, and, and said nice things about each other all the time. Is that just me? Oh. Um, <laughs> but so that happened with these guys. They were friends, obviously. They, they united against England. Then they won. And now they start becoming enemies because they're running against each other in, in, for certain political positions. Right? So they become enemies. And then later on in life, they become friends again. They, they forgive each other. They apologize. You know, the whole, the whole thing. And in their older age, though, an old letter was found that was written by John Adams completely smearing Thomas Jefferson. It was kind of like resurfaced. And what, what happened was um, a newspaper found it and they published it. They printed it. Right? So it seemed as if he just wrote it. Right? So, uh-oh. <laughs> Bad day for these um, reconciled friends. Thomas Jefferson, the, the one that was getting smeared, writes a letter to John Adams and he says this, Be assured, my dear sir, that I am incapable of receiving the slightest impression from the effort now made to plant thorns on the pillow of age, worth, and wisdom, and to see tears between, um, and to sow tears between friends who have been such for nearly half a century. Beseeching you then not to suffer your mind to be disquieted by this wicked attempt to poison its peace and praying you to throw it by. So in other words, he knew he's going to be worried that I'm going to be mad at him and I'm going to go back at him. And he says, I love you, throw it by. It's gone. Uh, uh, John Adams writes that this was the best letter ever written. And he read it to his whole family. Now Adams, he opened this letter. And Browning's parents didn't. Imagine if he didn't open it. Imagine what might have happened in their relationship. If he refused. An eloquent and passionate pursuit for wholeness and peace and love in their relationships perhaps would never have been known. You know, many, many letters today are, are unopened, aren't they? I want you to think about this in your life. Maybe there's a letter you need to write. Maybe there's a letter you need to open. A friend, a child, that you're, you're refusing to forgive, that you're refusing to make peace with. Maybe there's a letter that needs to go out or to be opened. A one, one opened letter can lead to great unity and love 
and reconciliation. The Bible is God's letter to you. It's from the God of all creation. It's the greatest pursuit of reconciliation of all of human history. Are you leaving it unopened? Do you refuse to read it? Do you hate God that much? Would you open it today and read his great love for you, pleading for you to be reconciled to him? Would you open it this morning or will you leave it that love story, untouched, unexplored, and unknown. Oh, I hope you open the letter. Open that divine letter written to you about God's great love for you and how he wants to be reconciled to you. Or are you going to, so to speak, take his Bible, wrap it in a brown package, and mail it back to heaven? Please open. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The Lord Jesus Christ speaks to us these words this morning in a letter, folded up, waited to be read. I love thee with the breath, smiles, and tears of all my life. And I shall love thee better after death. Open the letter. Be reconciled to God, friend. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And if you don't, if you know Jesus Christ, would you remember to keep reading that letter? Don't we forget as Christians sometimes that, that God has reconciled us to himself? We start thinking he doesn't like us again, right? Would you remember that the work is done, it's paid Reread that letter. Anyone who has been in love and who has received a letter from their lover knows what it's like to reread a love letter. We reread it and reread it and reread it and we pour over it. Oh, would that be our faith in God as believers in Jesus Christ to open that letter daily of that great and marvelous message that we have been reconciled to God through faith in Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, you are good and we love you so much. We ask, Lord, this morning that if there's anyone here that has opened that letter and read its beautiful gospel and message of your love for them, that this moment, that they would believe in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the bridge, the reconciler, the great demonstration of God's love, of your love for us. If that's you this morning and you're putting your faith in Jesus Christ for the first time, would you just tell him in the, in the privacy of your own mind? The Bible doesn't require some magic prayer to pray for you to be reconciled to God. It's simply a changed heart, a changed mind. You've, reconciled, you've recognized the problem of your own sin, that it separated you from God, and that you need Christ to reconcile you with your maker, that Jesus is the answer. And if you're, believing, if you're putting faith in all that this morning, the Bible says that you are reconciled to God. And I just invite you, if that's you, could you come talk to me? Would you come meet me at the prayer room? Or if I'm just kind of walking around, just pull on my shirt and just let me know. God, we just love you and we thank you so much for the body of Christ. God, I pray, Lord, that we would daily read your letter. In Jesus' name, amen.